0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest edition of For What It's Worth podcast. We are up to number 52. Conceivably, that's almost 52 hours of programming, which is just ridiculous, and I have no idea. I don't check how many people are listening to this podcast. My guess is very, very few, although I do get comments from time to time from people saying, hey, I love this thing. So, let me just give you a brief rundown. I don't know what day it is. They all blend together. I don't really have work days, non-work days, because that they sort of all blend together. Uh, last Sunday, I got hit up uh, in the middle of the afternoon by by work saying, hey, can we ask you to do something for us tomorrow for this presentation? So Sunday afternoon became about doing that kind of thing. So that's normal. It's not. I'm not martyring myself by any sense. I'm just saying it's kind of a weird thing. So today, I got up in relative good time, did not sleep well last night. For some reason, had very strange dreams, which we'll talk about in a minute. I think dreams are very important. I got up, I read about half of a Philip Roth book called Nemesis. And I think this is my first Philip Roth book, which is kind of amazing because he's written a hundred things and they're, he's apparently world-class. This is a very interesting book, novel, about a polio outbreak in Newark back in the day. And it's really good. It's a short read. I'll, I'll probably need another hour to get through it. Uh, but very solid, makes me want to read more Philip Roth. So I got up, I had my bulletproof coffee. I had my smoothie with beet powder because I knew at some point this morning I'd be getting on my bike, which I did. We have abnormally warm temperatures. We are somewhere between 55 and 60 degrees in February in Santa Fe, which is very atypical. This is the second coldest month of the year. And having a single day like this is an anomaly, and we have multiples back-to-back. So it's kind of weird. But the downside is very windy. So I did 20 miles, about 1,200 feet of climbing. And, uh, 10 miles were heavenly, just ripping with a tailwind. And then you turn around to come back and you go, I hate my life. I hate you. I hate cycling. I hate New Mexico. I hate the weather and I hate nature. So that was it. Came back, spent about 45 minutes answering, uh, maybe an hour doing email, uh, two different email accounts and my YouTube comments. Someone asked me about YouTube comments. I always reply. Otherwise to me, there's no point in being on YouTube. A lot of people get so successful they can't do it, and I also understand that, but there has to be some sort of effort, or it really, to me, kind of feels like a con, um, which obviously these networks are to a great degree. I'm not debating that. And then I had phone call, work call, and then I re-edited a three-camera, 45-minute film I did for my wife, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, and then I had another phone call, and then I did two Excel spreadsheets and one Google Docs thing for work, and then I wrote an interview for work, and then I had another phone call, and then I just had some nachos, nachos, nachos. And uh, and now I have this podcast, and then I have another call from 3 to 4.30, and that's my last call today. the day. So that's sort of my, my run today. That's why I'm here between calls. The podcast is a relief for me. This is just fun. I don't care if a single person listened to this. I would still do it because I love recording sound. But who is this podcast for? The Martin Castillo of podcasts. And if you don't know who Martin Castillo is, I just feel sorry for you. Because you haven't lived yet until you know, deep down, know Martin Castillo. Some people who knew him well called him Marty. But not many. Because if you reached out a hand and you didn't know him well enough, you'd be pulling back a stump. So anyway, this is the Martin Castillo podcast, but who is this for? This is for anyone who listens to Black Sabbath while doing yoga. If, If Black Sabbath is on your playlist while you're doing yoga, come on in, make yourself at home, let's get acquainted because this podcast is for you. Our hero of the week is anyone who is still trying to hide their digital dust after getting busted for doing something. The one that jumps out at the moment, the hot ticket of the moment, the one that n- everyone just can't get enough of is the, is Marjorie Taylor Greene, this piece of work who keeps trying to hide the things that she put on Facebook and deny it. Um, it doesn't work that way. Once it's there, it's there forever. And to watch these people try and hide their digital dust is frankly hilarious to me. And, and you're going to find out here in a minute about my tech woes that continue because they they are. I got a good tech woe week which is coming from a weird angle this week. Also, heroes this week are anyone who's honest. So I was watching Cops once. I love the show Cops. I always liked Cops. And now they have like live PD. I don't have a TV, so I don't have this, but I have friends who have it. And before COVID, I was in San Diego and we were watching live PD. And I just immediately got hooked. I was like, I would, I would forget to eat. I would forget to bathe. I would forget to go to work if I had access to live PD. So I'm watching cops once and they catch this guy behind like an abandoned truck stop and he's, he's wearing women's clothing and he's looking a little disheveled and he's in the cab of his truck and then they ask him something like, have you been drinking? And he says, well, yeah, but I only had like 20 beers. And I was like, I love this guy. That is my kind of honesty, saying I only had like 20 beers. And he looked fine, and he sounded fine. And the cops were like, he looks and sounds fine, but he's technically over the, over the, over the limit, and he went, he went down hard. So, And also, last hero of the week, and this is for you photogs out there who are jumping into photography, who are thinking you are going to get immediate fame access and that your work is brilliant and you're going to get accolades and you want immediate relevancy in this industry. You cannot look past Hal Holbrook. Hal Holbrook as an actor was one of my favorite guys. I mean, come on. He was the one that tried to steer Bud Fox in the right direction and failed, right? And then got a little bit of, you know, told you so at the end. But Hal Holbrook was an actor who played Mark Twain in a one-man stage show for six decades. Okay, you you, you wussies out there talking about committing, spending a weekend on a photo project. Why don't you just take a look at Hal Holbrook? Hopefully somebody will detail his his. Life in book form. And I would read it because the H squared is my kind of guy, and that's my kind of commitment. And Mark Twain was an interesting dude, obviously, legendary in the literary circles, literary world. Uh, But anyway, that's who our heroes of the week are. Our scum of the week, and man, this is it a lot of you van lifers out there, people who litter. I went to a trailhead about a week ago, and the amount of used toilet paper in this lot was absolutely staggering. It looked like snowfall, except it was just used toilet paper and garbage and trash. So all these newcomers who are out in the wilds because they can't get on planes are going out and they are literally destroying the environments that they're in. And now this has been building for quite some time. We have more people in less space and that never ends well. And it, w- it will only get worse until we do something catastrophic and then the planet Takes back over again, and we are discovered by, you know, a fun a sponge or something from another planet that comes down and goes. Jesus, these things were primitive. So don't litter. Uh, another another litter of choice here in New Mexico are these little uh, air, airline size liquor liquor bottles, plastic and glass. There's a grape flavored 99 proof something that probably would take the paint off your car. Those are by the hundreds. Um, Fireball by the hundreds. And these people just pound them during the day and toss them out the window. That's the most gutless thing I've ever seen in my life. And littering is a very peculiar thing because people who litter will also litter in their own, on their own property. And they will also litter in their own neighborhood, which they will then turn around and kill other people over that turf. I've seen it. I've photographed it. I've photographed gang members trying, shooting at each other, trying to kill each other over a four block stretch of turf while then turning around and throwing all their empty 40s on the ground in the same four block stretch. It makes no sense to me at all. So if you litter, you suck. Uh, Okay, tech woes this week are good. Now, the first one is my computer still dies and crashes once a day, which doesn't even bother me because I just expect something to go wrong with my computer because I'm jaded and this has been happening forever. So Every morning, I get up, and it says, your computer had to shut down. Do you want to send a report to Apple? And I go, no, I don't care. And I have to restart all the programs, and then all the programs that automatically open, I have to stop them. And it takes about five minutes. And I sit there cursing my bad luck. But this gets even better. So I tried to buy a 360 camera yesterday, and it's called a 360X2. And I'm buying this for a specific reason, because of... Being in the wilderness by myself on my bike, cycling, hiking, fishing, climbing, et cetera, it, it's going to be interesting. It's just something new. I want to learn how to use it in case I want to use it in my films. And so I'm like, great. It's not that expensive. It's about 499 bucks. So I go, and I have an option of buying this through like Amazon or another store, but I go to the site of the company, 360X2, which is, looks like a, it's not like a GoPro style camera. It's a little taller and narrower. And and the reviews on it are are great, and I'm still going to buy this camera. But here's where I run into the problem. So I go to the site, and I realize immediately that their site isn't working right. The shopping cart, once you put something in the shopping cart, you cannot get it out. So I think to myself, oh, it's bad internet at my house. I'll do this later when I'm downtown at high speed. So I end up downtown at high speed, and the same thing is happening. I cannot get something out of – there's three things in the cart I do not want. And if they accidentally get left in there, the bill's going to be over a grand, and I'm trying to spend like 500 bucks. So every time I go back and forth to the cart, all of those original items are still there. And if you uncheck them, they don't disappear. And if you toggle from the one, how many of these do you want? One, two, three, and you go to zero, it won't go to zero. So you can't get them out. I'm like, God, this is, this is not good. For like an electronics company, this should be better. So I managed to get what I want in there. And I have three things. What I've forgotten to get is the year of, of coverage for 39 bucks. So I go to buy this, I use the credit card that I run my entire business out of, and it says um, payment denied. And I go, oh, and I look down at the billing address, and I realize that their software has taken my unit number and put it in front of the street address. <clears throat> and I go, oh, they're seeing the unit, unit number, and it's, and it's saying that's the wrong address. And I go, okay, I get that. So I redo it, and I hit buy, and it's denied. And I go, God, that's weird because I use this card like every day for everything else. I go that's weird. So I get my other credit card out and I try that one. Denied. Now, with the second one, I get the fraud fraud alert the text which comes in 10 seconds afterwards. It says if you ordered this if you authorize this purchase at yes and boom, it'll automatically work and your card's ready and you can redo the purchase. So I go great and I redo it and so it denies this. So the third time it's denied. And then I realize, oh, I forgot the coverage. So I go back in and I get the coverage and the three items that I wanted. And now the bill's like 614 or 613. And I go to do it again and it says, payment accepted. Here's your order number. We'll ship this out as soon as possible. I go, great. I put the email in my equipment folder on the in my email. And about four hours later, I'm just sitting there and I go, something isn't right. This, something isn't right. Something tells me, I just feel something's not right. So I reach out to the customer service. I say, I got the payment accepted. I got my order number, but I never got a follow-up email. And they write back and they go, oh, you're on like a watch list. And now you have to send us, get this. You have to send us a photograph of your credit card and a photograph of your ID, And they said, you can block out these things, but you can't block out this, and you can block out four numbers on the credit card. And I wrote them, and I said, look, I've been a photographer for 30 years. I've been using this credit card for four years, nonstop, um, for everything. I've, first of all, never had to do this before. And number two... I would never, when you get a real ID now, which is your driver's license, but it's now called a real ID, which is what you're going to need to get on a plane here in the future. The first thing they say is do not ever send this to anyone for any reason. Do not send photographs or emails of your your identification and your credit card to anyone. And I wrote him and I said this. I said, look, I've never had to do this in 30 years. Um, this is not a high profile uh, thing. I walked them through the first two, the cards being you know, f- denied for some reason on their end, apparently. And then I said, finally, I got the payment accepted from you guys, which tells me that the credit card company has authorized it. And now you can t- take up your beef with the credit card company. Why are you coming to me? They already approved the sale. And so they were like, no, you can't do that. We well, have to send us your identification or you can't make this purchase. And I was like, okay, then cancel the order, like don't make the purchase. So it's so weird to me to go to the actual vendor site and run into this problem. I'll go on Amazon five minutes from now and order it with this original credit card. And it'll go through in two seconds and I'll get it. But I was like, man, why would I want to do that for Amazon when I can go directly to the brand? And I wrote him and said, you know, I don't want to be the bad guy here, but like this system sucks. And your website sucks. Your shopping cart sucks. And then even the accessory page on their site was really bad. And I was like, okay, In line with who Milner is as a technologist, this makes perfect sense. So um, no hard feelings towards the company that looks like they make a really cool product. And I'm not a web designer myself, and I'm not an e-commerce person myself, so I can only get so puzzled by this. But again, it's me. It's my tech situation. Okay, let's move on here. We've got a bunch of points, and my wife is breathing down my neck. Man, once you make one film for someone, and they have very low expectations... And then you not only make the film, but you do a three-camera with overlays. And, and oh, I hit it out of the park. And she, now she's breathing down my neck. Like, oh, hey, can you—I um, have—this morning, this is what she did this morning. She never comes direct. It's never a frontal attack. It's from behind. It's like Fred Ward in uh, Uncommon Valor, where he comes in behind you and then puts the knife in the back of your head and then scrambles your brain. That's what my wife does. She comes from a from a low angle behind me and has a list. And I see a written list and I know I'm in trouble. And she goes, hey, um, what are you doing? And that means I need something. And then she's like, hey, you know that film? And you're like, now I'm, I know I'm in trouble. Um, wow, and then then comes the flattery. You're amazing. I can't believe how well you did this. I can't believe how quick you were. And you're like, just get to the point. I know you're buttering me up here. And she has a list of like 10 edits. And she doesn't make films or work in the software, so she doesn't know what it means to do these things and how much how much it takes. And then to export a 1080 50-minute film, my computer gets, the, the, the new one, mind you, gets so hot and so loud, I just have to walk away for it. To, and it takes it 35 minutes to export. So that's, that was my morning. We're gonna, we're gonna get to that in a minute, though, because I learned some things about making this film. Point number one this week is about winter camping in a vehicle tent camping in a blizzard living in a yurt in the middle of the woods in the middle of winter regardless of whether or not you're pawning yourself off as a forest nymph it sucks i will tell you i have a van i've slept in the van in 20 degree weather which is not that bad it sucks it's freezing the van is a metal box And when you turn on a Mr. Buddy heater inside and it heats up, it's great. And then you turn the heater off and approximately 18 seconds later, it's sub-zero again. Camping in in the snow in a van in the winter, for the most part, sucks unless you're there to do something really amazing. And I don't mean make a YouTube film about how dreamy and heavenly your life is living in a a frozen tundra in a van. It is mind-boggling to me how many people are out there trying to sell this as some sort of adventure. Remember, I grew up in Indiana, which is dark, which is basically dark and gray for six months a year. I wore a snowmobile suit the whole time I was a kid. My brother was throwing frozen snowballs laced with gravel at my head. And I know how sucky it is. That's why everyone tries to leave and moves to Arizona or Las Vegas or whatever, because it, at, at some point in your life, you go, this blows, and you want to leave. So YouTube is chocked with these people out in the middle of these places, living in these Vehicles, they're in tents, they're in hammocks, they're in all kinds of weird talking about things like bushcraft, like the world is going to end. Let me save you some trouble. It blows. If you have a van, if you have a tent, if you want to practice bushcraft, if you want to do something, go to a temperate climate. Even middle, like Santa Fe right now, 54 degrees for a high today, 36 for a low. That is balmy. I'm not joking. 54 with sun out is t shirt weather. That's a really good place to, like, experiment with four-seasonal, navigational, automotive living. You don't need to go to Alaska and get buried in six feet of snow and tell us how great it is, because we know you're lying. And you're not a forest nymph. You're dressed like one, but you're not, because there's no such thing. Okay, moving on, point number two. Oh, my God. Uh, everything. I knew this would happen. I was waiting for it, it actually took a, 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 a few minutes longer than I thought it would. But apparently every ill with the country is now Biden's fault. So all my Republican friends and family are hi- dropping hints about how everything is now Biden's fault. Oddly enough, Kamala, Kamala Harris has, has not had a single piece of scrutiny in my mind. I have not heard one. Negative thing from any of my Republican friends about Kamala Harris, which is kind of shocking, but they all blame Biden for everything. And I'm talking the, pan, the 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 rollout for the vaccines, his fault; the economy, his fault; the unrest, his fault; the racism, his fault. Everything, and that's exactly what we do in this country. We draw lines, and then when our our guy loses or our person loses, we point a finger and go, "Oh, it must be the other person's fault." And we do it because a lot of people believe it, so it's definitely effective. Um, personally i would give him i don't know a b plus so far the executive orders were good and of course the the right is attacking him for doing executive order you know it's i ignore everything that's coming out of the republican party right now because they have completely and utterly lost their mooring i could not vote for any republican candidate right now only because of the behavior of what's happening at the top, top levels. And again, I'm, I'm skeptical of all politicians. Anyone who's of relevance at a certain level typically is compromised to the hilt in some way, shape, or form. They have skeletons in the closet. I know people who have worked for campaigns from all the way from presidential level down to state level. And my friends who work for these campaigns have said to me many times, these are people who are delusional that often think that the rules don't apply to them. So that's how they get into these positions. So I'm not like some Biden fanboy. He's way older than I would like my president to be. He's been around politics way too long for my, for my taste. I want somebody in their 40s. I want somebody who's progressive, who's, who's somebody that has revolutionary ideas but also has a foot in reality. And that says the, the current system isn't, isn't enough. It's not working for the average person. It's dividing us. Let's get better. Let's get smarter. Let's get younger. That's how I feel. So do I want Biden over, over, over Donnie dipshit? Absolutely, any day of the week. Um, I feel embarrassed for the Republicans for hitching their wagon to, of all people, that guy for four years. I think he just undid their entire party. I think they went from looking at total domination for multiple decades— to completely losing their founding and imploding as a political party, which sucks because it's like Nikon going away. Nikon shuts a factory in Japan after 70 years. That sucks for photography because, number one, the legacy of Nikon is undeniable, and two, their equipment is really good, and it sucks because then Sony and Canon and Fuji and everybody else, they go, well, that's one less player we got to worry about. That's one less, one less shark looking for market share, so that's, you know, maybe we don't have to improve as much as we thought. Okay. Wow, we're flying here. I mean, people, this is free. Just remember it's free. I'm not charging you for this. I should. And for 99.99, you can get my business sales tape to show you how that you can do yours as well. And you can review products all day long. Okay. So hang on water break. Oh, have I told you how much I love my Contigo water bottle? And no, I'm not sponsored. Next week, well, sometime between now and March, I am going to talk about a potential upcoming sponsorship that I have and why I have chosen to do it and how I look at sponsorships and how many I've turned down, why I turned them down, how I turned them down, but why I would I would do this. And so I don't have any sponsorship with Contigo, but I love this bottle. It's the bottle that I always tell my wife has the two-part mechanism, and it makes her so mad she screams at me, and I do it anyway, because to make her mad, make her scream, it's awesome. Okay, I have an admission to make. I watched Wonder Boys again, the movie. Now, I just reserved the book from the library. I've never read the book Wonder Boys. I've seen the movie probably 10 times, and I will watch it again. Here's what I like about Wonder Boys. Amazing cast, Great location. I love the city of Pittsburgh is very intriguing to me. I really like it. Every time I've been there, I love Pittsburgh. And it's a just a good story with a good script with good acting. That's it. The underlying foundation of Wonder Boys is the script. It's great. And the casting is great. There is not a weak character, even people who are in two scenes. They're really good. They're pl- whoever did the casting for Wonder Boys, I should know your name. I'm sorry. You deserve a lot of credit. The author, Michael Chabon, I think is, is it's based on, uh, it's a wonderful script, and I love it. And it makes me, I love writing. I love movies about literature and about writers, and I think it's fantastic. And there was a, there's a scene in it that kind of stopped me because, again, I've seen this, let's say, nine times, and it's the 10th time that I go, oh, uh, that, wow, I have, a, I have a story for that. So the Tobey Maguire character is getting put in the back of the police car after they find out that he shot the chancellor's dog, and um, he's standing outside the police car with Michael Michael Douglas's character, and he goes, he goes, "I'm not worried, Professor Tripp. Are you worried?" And he goes, and per- per- Professor Tripp goes, "Yeah, I'm. am a bit worried." So he gets in the back of the car, and Tobey Maguire looks up and he says, "Look, it doesn't matter if I go to jail. You're still the best professor I ever had," and and that to me is such an important thing. And when I say professor, you can interchange any person in your life that gave you direction, purpose, meaning, intention, etc. And I, it made me immediately think of two people that I had in my, my academic career, which were both college professors, one whose name I know, which I'll tell you in a second, and the other is somebody I don't remember his name, but his class was incredibly impactful on me. So at UT Austin, I was a photojournalism major, but I had minors in Spanish and anthropology. And anthropology was interesting because texas had a really solid department and they had these guest instructors from all over so i took a class called indians of of mexico and central america and this was about all the indigenous communities from the mexican border all the way down like the huichol and their and their peyote quest in the upper regions of mexico all the way down to like the La Condon. and by that time there were only about 250 La Condon indians left ever anywhere in the world and so i had an instructor the first day of class, he gives us the reading list of the books that we have to not only find, but buy. And I remember very specifically, there were 19 books on the list for the semester, 19. Most of the time, classes had one or two, 19. And these are obscure, like, you know, uh, whatever, Dutch uh, anthropologist in 1945 uh, writes a paper on the La Condone and you have to go find that because it's gonna, you're gonna be graded on it. And so there was another guy in the class, Whose last name was Milner. It was spelled differently, but Milner. And he and I immediately became pals in the class, and we became study partners because we realized, okay, we need to divide and conquer. So I'll take the first eight books on the list, nine books on the list. You take the rest. You try to get those. We'll swap them, and then we'll divide and conquer, which we did. And I was going to like college, university libraries all over South Texas trying to find these publications, and I did. We found all of them and the other milner and i became obsessed with this class because the instructor had lived in mexico with these tribes of indians which with these groups he wasn't just talking he had been there he lived in his van for years traveling from northern mexico all the way to the bottom of south uh, central america living with these tribes tribes of people and he had firsthand he had notebooks and he had photographs and I was like, that is what you call an instructor. And he and the other Milner and I, we went down the rabbit hole. We memorized basically 19 books. We, could, we, we knew little pieces of like Indian dialects and vocabularies. And we would quiz each other before the tests in the hallway. And the other students would look at us like, you guys are high. Something happened to you. You took peyote and you never came down, and so he had made an incredible impact on me. I was too much of a of a doofus at that time to remember his name. The other professor was a woman named Robbie Davis Elizabeth Floyd, and she was a birth specialist that came into UT and taught a class about childbirth. How I ended up in this class, I have no idea. I just remember it being all female students and me, which is typically a very good thing if you're uh you know if you're a student like me and you're like, hey, this is this is great no dudes. I got uh, got all these uh, wonderful women around me. And uh, she blew my mind because I was like, I don't know about childbirth and I don't particularly care about childbirth because I don't think I'm ever having kids and hopefully I'll never be having one myself. So again, she had traveled all over the world and done like films and stills and written about birth processes all over the world. So those two people made a huge impact on me. If you haven't seen Wonder Boys, it's fantastic. Get it, watch it. Point number four is about my morning smoothie. Now, I don't want to be douchey here because all the bros talk about their smoothies. But my wife asked me the other day what my favorite meal was. And I said, a smoothie. And she was like, huh? And I said, yeah, it makes me feel really good because I don't know what my, my, my body is like. My body is not a Ferrari, right? A Ferrari has won I don't know how many Moto GPs and Grand Prixs and everything else. Ferrari has won so many titles over the year. That's not me. I've never won anything. My body is like a 1984 Fiat. It kind of, You want it to be a Ferrari, but it's not. And it breaks down all the time. So I have a, sm- a smoothie in the morning that starts with two kinds of frozen fruit, mostly berries. And then I put what's called raw meal protein powder in it, which I've been eating for years and love it. My brother turned me on to that. And then I put um, L-glutamine. For my intestines, after taking antibiotics for two years, my body's completely wrecked. So I take L-glutamine, I take vitamin C, I put in chia seeds, I put in beet powder or creatine. Um, and I don't take those every day, but uh, the beet powder is a vasodilator that helps when I'm cycling and, and like pushing myself hard. Um, or I'll put creatine in maybe once a week. And then I put um, moranga powder which is like a green powder, which is good. I put almond butter, a little bit of non-dairy yogurt. Uh, Today I put in a pear, half a pear, and then I put in water and I blend it. And it tastes awesome. And it's like micronutrients. So your body, when when you ingest, and I can do an entire blender of this stuff and drink the whole thing, and your body doesn't go high or low. Your body just—it's like putting gas in the car. It just goes, whoosh, and you feel it. And then I jump on my bike, and you have like immediate energy that's there to pull on. And so that's my smoothie recipe. A lot of people have been asking me about that for one reason or another. Uh, okay, point number five is for you gearheads. You're not for you gearheads, but for you photo heads out there. So I was in, I, I was texting images back and forth with with a friend, and um, he I sent this one and 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 he says to me look i know this technique you like but this picture is just not very good and so one i was like in my head this giant question mark of like you're critiquing my the images i'm texting you one that never crossed my mind that we would we would these would be critiqued in any way number 2 i never thought that this was good i'm just firing random shit at you but it got me thinking and this is very important to me because a lot of folks, I, have, I spend a lot of time talking about photography, even though I'm not a photographer anymore. In the past year, and obviously COVID has wrecked a lot of things. I can't do the kind of projects that I would normally be working on. I did have the opportunity to start a wonderful project on March 21st that got destroyed. But I ha- in the, in the past year, I have been in the field for a grand total of one day, one, with a still camera in my hand, where I said to myself, I'm trying to make something great, not just good. I'm trying to make great. Good is what I have to make on a weekly basis. I'm attempting to make something good on a weekly basis, which is like, you know, the YouTube films and writing blog posts for Blurb and doing that t- that stuff. It's good. Great never enters the conversation. It legitimately never enters my mind that I am trying to make something great. I haven't done that in so long. Really, 2012 was the last time that I went in the field for like multi-weeks with a camera and said, okay, I'm going to try to make something really good, really something great. And good and great are, are worlds apart. One day this year, which was boiled down to about five hours, which was primarily waiting, standing around and waiting for something to happen. One day for five hours, I tried to make something great. And I didn't get it. I made good that day. I didn't make great. So it's weird. You get sort of programmed into, and I, and I guess maybe it's an, it's an admission. It's like going to a confessional, which I've never done, and I probably should, but I have never have. Which, by the way, photographers, the best confessional scene in the history of cinema is, even though he's a douche, James Woods in the movie Salvador, where he's, he goes to the priest trying to marry his Salvadorian girlfriend to get her a sedula, to get her out of the country, and he goes to the confessional, and the priest is like, okay, so what have you done? And he's like, look, I have been an, an effing weasel. Um, you know, I've done this. I've I've done this, and the priest is like, you know, are you going to, um, you know, say say some Hail Marys? And he's like, he's like, really? That's that, that's that's all I have to do. It's easy. And and the priest goes, you got to change your ways. And he goes, well, that's gonna be pretty hard. That's you know, he's like, can I you know smoke a little pot now and then and like drink and whatever? And that to me is the best confessional scene because that's how most of us would be if we went in there and we were honest. So this is a confessional. Once you confess, and you get it off your chest, it's not a big deal. I don't feel bad about going in the field and not trying to make something good, because I know I can't. I don't have the time. I'm trying to do too many things at once. And again, I'm not martyring myself. I have a cakewalk life compared to a lot of people. Yes, I work a lot. I work six or seven days a week. Um, Some people would look at some of the things I'm doing and say, that's not work. And I beg to differ, because when you have Brands and companies and pressure, and you're also putting the work of other people in your hands and then putting things out that represent them. It is work. And so to me, it never turns off. I haven't been able to sleep well for the past week because I'm waking up at 2, 3, 4 in the morning thinking about AG23. Did I miss something in the, in the edit of the second proof, you know, maybe Rick will catch it, you know, that'll then, we'll you know, we're working together to make sure this is good as possible. Are the contributors going to be happy? And then three o'clock rolls around and four o'clock rolls around. And I'm like, God, I need to, I need to finish that. There's two posts I have to go back on and redo the SEO, all this stuff. And so you're like, okay, that's work to me, right? It just happens to be the work that I do. I've, I've done construction in the past. I've installed hot tubs. I've been a fragrance model. I've worked on a ranch. Um they all suck in one various shape, way, shape, or form. Um, my job now is awesome, uh, but it is a lot of work. So good good is 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 attemptable for me, great is not. At least not now. Uh, okay, point number six is a is a weird, odd story that reminded me of getting sick, and I thought, hey, why not share it? You guys will love it. So apparently, sea lions in California, those cute little creatures um who look very tasty just kidding. Apparently, they have a herpes that triggers cancer, and it starts from exposure to DDT and PCBs, and they're dying. So let me repeat that. We have sea lions with herpes that triggers a cancer from being exposed to DDT and PCBs, and they're dying. And I'm like, wow, now I feel like miserable, and I hate the earth, and I hate humans. Uh, for doing this, because clearly we are at fault. Uh, DDT is one of our favorites of all time, and PCBs are right up there as well. And it reminded me, when I lived in California, I lived there for 25 years. uh, And for some of that time, I lived right on the water. And for some of that time, I lived in the city. And for some of that time, I lived sort of in Burbia that was by the water, but not right on it. I got sick every year from swimming in the ocean. Let me repeat that. I got sick Every year from swimming in the ocean. And I remember when I moved to California in 96, I think I got sick in 96. I got sick in 97. I got sick in 98. I got sick in 99. Everybody I knew was getting sick in the water. And it was so common that no one even really talked about it. And then one day I was on the beach in Laguna and I was talking to a guy named Dennis and Dennis was sort of a local fixture. He was an ex meteorologist who basically was living on the beach and he was surfing and body surfing and whatever. Everybody knew him. He was super cool. He was incredibly enthusiastic about the ocean. And I remember getting really sick one time and getting out of the ocean and knowing within 30 minutes of getting out how sick I was going to be. I felt it. It started felt in my throat first and then it and I was like, "Oh my god, here it comes." And it was really bad that year. And I remember running into Dennis on the beach um, after I had recovered and I said, "Dennis, I got this weird fl- theory here." I said, "I kind of feel like I got sick from swimming in the ocean." And he looks at me and he like tilts his head and he goes, "We all get sick swimming here." And I was like, Oh, he goes, "Oh yeah, that's been happening since the, you know, 1980s." And he said, "You know, the water quality testing is done a mile offshore so that it's the only way they can get those water readings to pass the safety levels to say it's okay to have the beach open." You know, you test at the shoreline, they're going to close Main Beach every day. And so I was like, "Oh, okay. So anyway, these poor sea lions, you know what? I we were the we were the the canaries in the coal mine and now they're suffering for it so that sucks there's nothing worse than like a polluted ocean so hey do what you can donate some money write a letter go to the beach with a one of those little fake hand things that you pick up trash with and a trash bag and just do your part man get out there okay speaking of water i am jonesing so bad for a multi-day canoe trip and i have never done. well let me think about that have i done a multi-day canoe trip no I don't think I have. I've done a lot of canoeing, but I don't think I've done a multi-day trip. I need to really think about that. I feel like I'm missing something, like I have, but I'm not remembering it. Um, but anyway, that's what I really want to do. I want to go up to like boundary waters and I want to do a multi-day trip. I want to go into Canada when the border is open, up into Ontario, Manitoba, where I've been many times in the past. And these, we- these-, these thinking and fantasizing about these canoe trips and the fishing that's up there, which is unbelievable. If you haven't fished in Canada, it's heavenly. For those of you who like to wet a line, whether you're spin casting or you are fly fishing, it doesn't matter. It is heavenly. It's clear water. There's no people, black bears, bald eagles, and just an abundance of fish. And so let me tell you what we used to do. My father and I used to go to Canada, up to the territories or the, the tops of Manitoba, Ontario, and we would go fishing up there every year. We would take we would fly to like Thompson, Manitoba. Then we'd get in float planes, and we'd go even further And some of the places were kind of mellow and some of the places were like really heavy water exposure, you know, freezing temps, all that kind of stuff. But the fishing was unbelievable. And my brother never liked to fish and hunt. My sister never liked it. My mom did, but she was kind of by that time, like, you know, half-assed about it. She didn't really want to go. And my mom's a great fly fisher woman. Uh, But she was, for some reason, it was like a dad and I thing, right? And we'd go up there and do these things. And it was fun because part of the adventure was getting there. And so, you know, you'd land in Thompson and the runway in Thompson at the time was dirt and the jets would have these big air pressure things on the front of the engines to keep the rocks and stuff from flying up into the engines. And then you'd spend the night in Thompson and get in float planes and fly out to these remote areas and the pilots would come in. And the little float planes were always an adventure. They were either overloaded in the pontoon, you know, the the measurements on the pontoon where it would say like safe level and there'd be like 12 foot or 12 inches of measurements. And then the last measurement would be like a foot underwater. And you're like, "Mm, I'm not a math guy, but that looks bad. I remember getting on a float plane once and the entire aisle of the plane, from from floor to ceiling, front to back, was stacked with cases of beer. You Once you got in your seat, you were trapped, 100% trapped, until they unloaded the beer. And we did it anyway. We were like, eh, what's, what could possibly go wrong? I remember being uh, in a plane where my father was the co-pilot. My, my dad doesn't know anything about flying. He was just fat. He was big and fat. And they wanted to balance out the plane, and so he ended up in the co-pilot seat. And it, the plane started to ice up and the pilot started to lose a little bit of the you know precision and he was and we had to like try to de-ice this thing and it was terrifying i also remember my father being in the co-pilot seat of and we we took off we were on a, in a very remote area on a dirt runway and the runway had a huge hill in the middle which i'm no engineer i'm not an an, an uh, aeronautical engineer or a landscape engineer for that matter but a hill in the middle of a runway seems like a really bad idea and so I remember sitting in the back of the plane. My dad's in the co-pilot seat. The plane's overloaded. It's this tiny, tiny plane. And I'm looking through out through the windscreen, and I can't see anything. And then the pilot hammers it. And a, there's a plane that's taken off before us. And the pilot hammers on the throttle, right, in our plane. And as soon as the plane levels out, the the rear tire comes off the ground. Now I can see out the front window and I'm looking at a hill. I'm looking at the bottom of a hill and I'm thinking that looks almost like the BMX ramp I had as a kid. That can't be a good thing. And so our plane is so overloaded that we come over the top of the hill and the hill was supposed to act like a little catapult, but it doesn't because we're too overloaded. And so we come over the hill and the plane is still glued to the ground. And now the pilot's thinking, I got to use this downhill to get as much speed as possible. The problem is that the plane that took off from front of it in front of us is now stuck in the mud sideways in the middle of the runway. And I look at it and I'm thinking we're all dead. There's no possible way we are going to live through this. And the pilot without slowing down, can't the plane to the right off the runway into this field and, and he keeps the speed up. It's unbelievable. It's like, I don't even know how to describe it. The plane is still going high speed like takeoff speed, but now we're going in a circle on the ground, and he aims the plane back towards the hill in the middle, but now in the other direction. And I'm thinking to myself, if there's a plane coming from the other way, we're all dead. It's going to be an epic explosion. Uh, My dad's going to get it first, right? So I'll live approximately a quarter of a second longer than he will, long enough to go, hee, hee. Uh, But it didn't happen. And we hit that hill and took off and finally got in the air. And the stall warnings on the plane are just lighting up the dashboard and the stall warning. And the pilot, without skipping a beat, the first thing out of his mouth, he goes, Man, I hope we land before that storm gets here. And literally when we landed, I got off the plane and I had sweat. The plane is icing, remember. I had sweat through my entire wardrobe. My jeans my jacket, everything. I had sweat out of fear so much in the back of the plane that I sweat through my outfit, my pants, I sweat through. So anyway, that was the beauty of Canada. And if that doesn't sound fun to you, then I don't know, maybe this is the wrong podcast. But canoeing, I want to do a canoe trip. I would love to go back up and do some fishing trips. And it will happen. It will. Canada, open the border. Let us in. We're all clean. I promise we have everything under control. Okay. I mentioned earlier dreaming, so I think dreaming is one of the most important things we can do, whether it's daydreaming or those nocturnal dreams that we have. Sometimes they're action-adventure dreams. Those are good. I had one the other night. I was um, on a dirt bike crossing the desert, and I was wearing like a 1970s motorcycle helmet with the goggles that were clear, that were bugged out in the front. I had no visor and I'm just ripping, and I'm just in the flow. Going, I think I was in the Baja 1000, maybe. I don't know. I'm just ripping across the desert, and then all of a sudden, I'm in a double-decker hearse that's actually a giant sandwich, and it has glass walls, and I'm like, wow, look in. You can see inside the sandwich, and now we're outside this giant sandwich, and we're walking around it talking about how cool it is, but it's a hearse at the same time, and I'm, I'm a little bit in the dream. I'm a little boggled as to why it's a hearse. What has died have I died? Has the sandwich died? Is there some other body inside the sandwich? I don't know. And as I'm starting to look around, I see that my friends are there, my wife is there. And then I'm now in the crowd looking in at the sandwich, but now I'm on the sandwich and I'm some sort of British royalty and I'm riding on the sandwich waving to the crowd from the insides of a bulletproof van. And then I woke up. And so I have no idea what that means, but I think it's important and I think dreaming is something, and i'll I'll switch over here from the nocturnal dreams, which, like I mentioned just now, are fantastic and make total sense. Someone out there knows what my dream is about, but the not the daydreams are actually more important to me because they are wh- what lead us to who we will be in the future. And for those of us who grew up here in in America, you can all you maybe you got a ruler in the back of the head. Maybe you got a ruler on your hands. Maybe you got punched in the back of the head by a teacher. Maybe you got smacked by a teacher. Remember, this all happened when when I was in school. So if you were, quote, caught daydreaming, they would physically punish you. And that could be a slap, a punch, you know, uh, a ruler to the back of the head, a ruler to the hands, whatever. Snap out of it. Don't daydream. But I think as adults, especially now in the age of the internet, it's way more important to daydream now than ever. It's far more important for you to daydream than it is to, for you to surf the web. It's far more important for you than watching television or loafing around doing nothing. It's really important because I do think it it's like doors of perception. It opens up something that you're not consciously thinking about that oftentimes to me leads us to where we're going to be. So don't short, shortchange yourself on daydreaming. I think it's a really important part of life and uh, hopefully you'll you'll get more done. All right, some fast points here. I write a lot of letters and I write a, letters, a lot of letters to my mom. And I finally talked to my brother after a few weeks. And my brother says, By the way, all the letters that you're sending to mom have been opened. Someone has gone through your letters and has, uh, my brother said, it looks like they've taken them out, crunched them up, stepped on them, and then put them back in. And now I'm taping these envelopes shut. And my brother goes, Look, you know, he said, the first letter I saw a year ago was. I saw it taped, and I thought, oh, maybe these letters don't have good adhesion, and he's taping them. And then he said the next one was opened, and the next one, he goes, every single one of them has been opened. Somebody is rifling this mail looking for something. And this brings me to a point, because pretty much every day, someone gets on the AG23 site, and they write me from somewhere in the world, and they say, how come you're only shipping in America, and you're not shipping over here? And I've written this email now probably 50 times, which is, look, you don't understand how bad the, the mail situation is in America. My brother also said that the letters are averaging about 5 weeks to go from Santa Fe, New Mexico to Texas, right, which is the neighboring state. It's less than 700 miles to my mom's house. And they're taking 5 weeks. Some of which some have taken over 2 months to get there. So the the situation with the postal service right now is really bad. Now, I told my brother it's 50/50 that it's someone in Texas opening it or someone in New Mexico opening it. But I think what's happening, these are not like beautiful letters or, you know, masterpieces of poetry. There's nothing in this that's going to like rivet someone to read. It's someone looking for potential money. It's like they see the names on the envelope and they go, oh, this looks like one member of the family sending somebody else something. Oh, maybe there's money and they just keep doing it. So now I've I've wrapped the next letter. It is the Fort Knox of letters. If it's open, there is no mistaking that somebody opened this letter because it's going to ruin the actual envelope if you wanted to open this because there's so much tape on it now. My mom will probably give up. And my, my brother said that my mom is like, you know, she gets a letter, sometimes she makes an effort to read my letters, and sometimes she doesn't. So I'm still sending them. I still send them to people all over. I love correspondence, really love it. I think it's also an important thing. Okay, point number 10. For all you Australians out there, you are about to eat your heart out, man. All of my Australian friends, well, 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 how times have changed You used to corner the market. You owned the market on a little object called a Tim Tam. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, we've got 900 flavors and 14 box sizes. Oh, you want some in America? Well, how much money do you have? How much are they? Yeah, well, how much you got? That's what Australia was. They looked at someone like me, and they're like, you're a crummy American. Tim Tams are ours. You don't have them. You can get them, but they're going to be the price of plutonium, right? That's what, well, guess what? Australia. Trader Joe's. Oh, Trader Joe's now has a fake Tim Tam. Is it a Tim Tam? No, it's fake. But it's close. It's really close. And I have been eating my body weight in fake Tim Tams. The second my wife came home from Trader Joe's and said, you're not going to believe what happened. And I was like, what the government got overthrown? And she's like, no, more important. I was like, um, the vaccine doesn't work? No, more important, Trader Joe's has a fake Tim Tam. So I have just eaten myself sick at least three times on these, and I will continue to do so because I want to punish Australia. That is my goal. That's all I have to say about that. Okay, point number 11, a couple of weeks ago, I asked on YouTube, I I, I brought your attention to a raffle that was happening for a bike called a Priority 600X. They were trying to raise 30000 bucks. I think they raised about 50000 which is, I thought they would actually raise a fair bit more, but I'm glad they hit their goal. And it seems like good people, good organizations, and a very unique bicycle that would have been really fun to have. I did not win. Some crowd, lousy uh, other person won. Um, I'm not. I'm not jaded at all. I'm not. Uh, I'm not uh, jealous or uh, vengeful. No, not at all. Not me. Some other loser won the bike. No, I'm kidding. Someone else won it. And that's cool to me because, number one, they raised money to put kids on bikes. That's a fantastic thing. And number two, somebody got a hell of a bicycle, like a really fun, interesting bike that I think is is sort of a, a roadmap to the future, potentially, of a, a significant number of bicycles. If they can figure out how to do it cost-effectively and putting pinion gearboxes and Gates drives on bicycles, I think it'll be good. So congratulations to whoever won. And for those of you who out there who took the time to enter the raffle, thank you for doing so. I'm stoked every time I see kids on bicycles. I passed a couple uh, earlier today, and it was a dad and two kids, and the older boy actually was being left behind, and he was pissed and starting to scream and cry And when I came up behind him, and then his face went from... I hate my family. I'm going to implode to seeing me out of the corner of his eye. And his face changed in a second, like a millisecond. Like, I'm in control. I'm fine. Everything's cool. I love my family. I'm just lagging back here on purpose. So anyway, I love seeing kids on bikes. Thank you for entering. And I'm glad somebody won this this bad boy. Point number 12, um, I shot a three-camera film for my wife, right? My wife comes to me. And I told you how this happens, right? Always an indirect attack. It comes in at your knees, 100 miles an hour from out of your line of sight, and then you're just on the floor in a crumpled heap doing whatever she wants. And so my wife's like, I have to make a film for such and such. And I'm like, great, good luck with that. And she's like, uh, you know, if if you were going to do this, um, what would be your, and of course, this is all BS. This is the the, the the penance, what you have to do before you realize I am doing this film for her. I just don't know it yet. So she's setting stuff up, and maybe she did this on purpose. It looks and sounds so horrible that I'm like, oh, this is embarrassing. And then, of course, like an idiot, I go, you can't do it that way. You have to do it this way. Let's move this table and turn this room into the, what you need, the studio. And then, you know, you're going to need this camera back here. And I used the Sony ZV-1 as the primary camera, and it worked incredibly well. That camera was so fantastic. And then just for fun, because I've never done this before, I've never done anything with my phone as a video as video camera, really ever. It's just not an interesting to me. I like using these other things. So I used the iPhone 12 and also shot a 50-minute 1080p, 30 frames a second film with the iPhone, I used the Sony as the main camera, and then to test out the handheld ability of the X-T4, I used that, and then I used two mics to record things, and of course now I'm in the middle of this, and I'm like, what an idiot, I've just been suckered into doing an entire film production for free. In the midst of 900 other responsibilities that I've had, I've somehow managed to take this on. But I learned a lot. I learned that I need to be doing multi-camera views a lot more because it just looks a hell of a lot better. And it's really fun. It's really fun to mix and match that footage. And and I've mentioned this before, but when you start filmmaking from a still photographer perspective, Yes, the editing in still photography is incredibly important. The edit is something that often gets overlooked, especially in the Internet and the social media age, where people have really lost the ability to, to decisively edit. You know, when you see a decisive edit, it jumps out because they are merciless. You know, the, a good edit is not your friend. A good edit is for the story. And so it's, you don't see it very often. And so with filmmaking, you realize that the beauty comes in the editing bay. So you go out and you cast this net of content, and you're trying to collect as many things as possible, and then you go back and put it together. And when you've got multi-camera views, three in this case, and then I was also shooting stills, so basically I had four elements. Um, It was a blast putting it together, and it was actually far easier than I thought. And then like an idiot, you know, my wife's like, oh, you're so good at this. And my ego's like, oh, yeah, I am. I'm a filmmaker. I'm awesome. And then she's like, okay, let's work on a re-edit. And I'm like, I hate myself, and I hate life, and I don't want to live anymore. So anyway, if you haven't done multi-camera, it's worth doing. Uh, speaking of cameras, I got an email this morning. This is point number 13, by the way. There's two more. And one the last story is about puking, which I know you guys want to hang around for because it's important and we've all done it. And it can be really fun and entertaining, and I want to explain that. But the 13th point is about camera reviewers. A really, really nice person reached out to me this morning and asked about cameras. They want uh, they want to get a new camera. And I tell people, always tell them the same thing. I said, I use Fuji cameras for a reason, because ergonomically, they're the easiest and the best cameras, I think, out there. They're also very inexpensive in comparison to what else is out there, and they're very capable. There's Yes, if you need full frame, you ain't going to use Fuji unless you go up to the medium format size things, but most people don't need that. They don't want that. They don't want to spend that. So it doesn't enter into the conversation. So I give people, I show them what I use. I'll send a link to the X-T4 and I will send a link to like the, whatever the little X-100V or whatever the little built-in lens one is. And now there's a new X-T4, which is also tiny, but it has interchangeable lenses. So I give them the options of these things. And so they often ask about reviewers and reviews. And I had to tell people again that the vast majority of these people, and I, I get why the brands do this, at least in part, the vast majority of these re- reviewers have no idea what they're doing with a camera in their hand. If you're walking around a park somewhere or some random urban you know, in a in a city, trying to shoot "quote unquote" street pictures, and you're talking about autofocus tracking and the menus and all this. It is absolutely meaningless reviews. Meaningless. Um, I guess people are. I know people are watching those reviews, but does the, is that translating to people buying those cameras? I have no idea because, from a photographer perspective, like Michael Clark in Santa Fe uses Fuji, and I've mentioned this before. If I need, if he, if I, if he had a piece of gear and I was thinking of getting it and I reached out to him and I said, does this work? And he goes, yeah, then I, that's all I need. Or if he said no, or if he said yes, but there's a tragic flaw. And he told me, and I was like, okay, I could live with the flaw or I can't because I need it for this. That's all I need. I don't need to watch a YouTube review because one, he's out using it for like world-class assignments and doing, doing things with the cameras that I will never do. And so if it works for him, chances are it works for me. These reviewers are completely useless in terms of actual... I mean, I, I don't... In some of these people, I've never seen a single good photograph that they've made. Never. You know, does this camera have a shutter lag? Does it have real viewfinder? Do it? Does it have interchangeable lenses? What's the size of the file? How's the color fidelity? You know, all that stuff that's essential for if you're going to use it as an actual tool as a photographer. And so I get really concise with people and just say, look, don't waste your time watching camera reviews because it's just a it's a rabbit hole of nonsense from a bunch of people who don't have never been photographers. And so these are the three. They come to me and I'm like, I'm an expert. Not really. I just say, look, this is why I use these and how they work and I think they'll probably work for you. And the number one important thing is buy a camera that you're willing to carry. You know, how many of these people have said to me over the years, well, I bought a big DSLR and the lenses, but I don't want to carry it. And I'm like, sell it; it's useless. You're never going to use it. Just get something tiny that fits in your pocket that's capable. And Fuji, to me, is really near the top. I know that there's other, you know, Panasonic's and and um, you know, Sony makes a couple of small ones that are good as well. But the ergonomics of the Fuji, to me, are supreme. Okay. Point number fourteen is about photo books and man, I just see this trend that's happening all the time. Now, on point number one with this, before I get to the, the the meat of this point, is the fact that people are talking about photo books so much as they are today. That is a great thing. So my my beef here is, if you know about the photo industry, it's not surprising, but it rubs me the wrong way. And it's why I love alternatives to the traditional processes. I am not someone who sits around and says to me, says to myself, I'm going to wait for somebody to tell me what to do. I'm going to wait to tell me, I'm going to wait for someone to tell me if my work is good. I'm going to wait for someone to tell me that I'm good enough to do a book. I'm going to wait for someone to tell me what I'm going to do and what I'm going to think and how I'm going to act in my life. I have never done that. I do not want to do that. At the times in my life when I was more constricted by the industry of photography, I was miserable because I the people who were in charge of my career at the time were people that I didn't even really know there were editors and art buyers and agents and people in new york and i would i was like i don't even know these people and they're the ones telling me if i'm good or not and they're going to say if they're going to give me a, throw me a bone give me an assignment or not give me an assignment it never it never sat well with me so the second that i had the ability to put ink on paper and put publications into the world by myself i did and the initial conversation i had with blurb in like 2006 with the founder when she called me was well, she said, what do you want? And I said, I want to make small-run book, small art books outside of mainstream publishing because my projects are not economically viable for traditional publishers, and I don't want to spend 18 months with a traditional publisher. I want to move on. My job is to make pictures, not to sit in, in production meetings for a book. So I, the second I could do it on my own, I did. I still love traditional publishing. I have a row of 100 books to my left right now that I'm staring at that I still buy, so I'm not knocking traditional publishing. It just wasn't for me. So I get emails from all over the world about photo book publishing, and one of the things that I've noticed is the same 20 people get book after book after book after book after book. It's the same people. I got an email last week that, sh- that highlighted and reviewed 10 new photo books. Nine of the 10 were from photographers that have book after book after book after book, and I, l- I just looked at it and I said, I don't need another book from any of those people. These are a bit rehashed, they're a bit retreaded, they all have the same basic look and feel. There's a sort of style of book, it's a material style, it's a style of photograph, and it just isn't enough for me anymore because I have been exposed to the general public. In the 11 years that I've worked for Blurb, I have seen the most incredible range of story and book come through Blurb that is so far beyond anything I ever expected. It puts everything else to shame that I have seen. In terms of, I'm not talking about the, the quality of the blurb book versus a traditional publisher. I'm talking about the range of story. The number of people who are not professional photographers or book designers who have, who have put stories down on paper through blurb because for one reason or another they felt like they needed or wanted to do it, and all they're trying to do is make a single copy. And you see these books and you go, oh my god. This is the best story I've seen in months and months and months. I've reached out to these people over and over again over the years, and a huge percentage of them say, I don't care about that. I don't want to be known. I don't want to sell these. I don't, I'm not, I not a professional photographer. I don't want anything to do with it. I just did this story because I thought it was interesting. And so when I see the same people getting books over and over and over again, it speaks to the conformity that's happening in the creative fields, photography in particular. There's so much conformity. Uh, and it's I don't need to see more books from these same people. Like wait until you've done something very different. And for the publishers, I get it because it's so clickish. The book world is incredibly clickish. It's like high school. There's the cool kids, and the cool kids get books, and everybody wants one of those. And they the books are they're they're, they're purchased and they're hidden and they're put away and nobody touches them and nobody sees them. And it's it's a weird peculiar thing. Again, a great thing because I think photo books are very cool. And I think they are time capsules that are going to be even stronger in the future than they are now when you know something like I mentioned before, something catastrophic happens, and the sponges are digging through our rubble, and they're going to find photo books, and they're going to go, man, there were some pretty talented folks running around, and this was a pretty peculiar society, if you will. So that's my uh, one final thing I'll say about that is the vast majority of these people who are getting book after book after book. 50 years old or older. Think about that. They're my age or older. They're not younger. They're not in their 20s. They're not in their 30s. That also speaks to something that's not good. So, just something to think about. Okay. Last part of this uh, is a story. It's a disgusting story, but one I found funny. Um, And it's about puke. I'm trying, I'm debating do I want to tell this now or do I want to save it? It's about a, it's, I think I'm going to save it. It's so good. I mean, we all have our, our puke stories. And, um, in fact, someone wrote me today and said, I think I have food poisoning. And I was like, well, that's not good. I've had it like 20 times. So I actually don't mind food poisoning at all. And I'm not joking about that. Food poisoning. I've had food poisoning so bad where I was hallucinating. Uh, I'll go ahead and tell the story. It's a different puke story. So we were living in California, my wife and I just moved there. I'm doing a project about what it's like to be Muslim Muslim, and live in the United States. And this is long before 9-11, so no one's talking about Islam, they're not talking about Muslims. And I sort of get this assignment. I get an assignment to photograph in a mosque in uh, Arizona, and I'm there, and it leads to these very interesting conversations and discoveries on my part about sort of the com- Muslim community. And I'm learning about it, and I'm like, wow, this is really interesting. And then I make some really good connections. And I'm ending, and then I end up in Orange County, California, and I have make a really good connection there. Who's helping me on this project and story? I work on the story for four years. I travel. All, I worked on it in Africa. I worked on it all over the United States, and uh, so I'm working in Orange County, and I I meet this group, this subgroup inside the Muslim community, very cool, and they're they're like exposing me to the area that they live in, which is probably 15 miles away from where I do, very different. Tons of refugees from Southeast Asia. Um, I almost, I'm, I'm getting, changing film, standing next to my truck, outside of their apartment complex, this community of people that I'm photographing, and I'm, I'm I go in, and I have a Toyota Tacoma, and uh, it's a King Cab, and so I put the passenger seat forward, and I'm reaching in for film, and I'm reloading my Leica, and there is a drive-by shooting in the alley about 30 feet behind me. But they're not, it's not a car. It's two guys on bicycles who shoot this third guy. And, I, and I mean, it's, they're right behind me. And I it's like, bam, bam, bam. And I turn around, and the two guys on bikes with the guns are sitting there staring at me. I'm like 20 feet away now. And the third guy's down in the alley. And they could have easily shot me. But they were so surprised, and I was surprised to see them, and they were surprised to see me, that they take off. And within, I, I kid you not, 30 seconds, there is a police chopper. Hovering over the tops of the apartments, they were on these guys so fast. It was unbelievable how fast they were. But anyway, I'm there and I'm photographing this, and this community is introducing me to their food, which I absolutely love. So I go back to Laguna and I'm telling my wife, I go, God, man, this food is so good. This food is so good. And they told me about this restaurant, and I go, Let's go to the restaurant. My wife's like, No, it's like 15 miles. I'm like, It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. It's gonna be great. It's like 15 miles away, and it's traffic and blah blah blah. And I'm like, I just badger her, badger her until she just is broken. And she's like, fine, you know, get in the car. And we're screaming at each other like good couples do. And there's just hate and rage and, you know, maybe a buffet at the end of it. So I get her in the car. We drive over there. We eat this meal. (laughs) And we get back to the house. And about five minutes later, my wife's like, I feel funny. I feel really funny. And then she just erupts like Mount Vesuvius. It's just ash clouds 20,000 feet in the air. And I'm like, hey, hey I feel fine. So she's like, you brought me over there, you poisoned me, you suck. I'm rethinking everything, and I'm thinking, I'm fine. I made it, you got it, I didn't, whatever. But she had this meal that had shrimp in it, and I didn't. But I took one bite of hers. So... I'm like thinking all that night, I'm like, I made it, I made it, I'm fine, I made it. And the next day, the next morning, late morning, I'm in downtown Laguna Beach and I'm by myself and I'm walking. I don't remember where I was going. But I'm in the middle of the street in downtown Laguna and in the distance of one stride, so like my left foot coming forward and hitting the ground, in that one stride, in my mouth, I have this undeniable, very, very clear taste of red wine. Now, on a normal day, you might think, how nice. Was it a Merlot? Was it a Cab? Was it a Big Zin? But no, I hadn't had wine in a long time. And I thought, that's peculiar. I haven't had any wine. Why does my mouth taste like wine? And then I felt as if there was a substance inside my legs moving down towards my feet. Like there was, uh, like I was being poisoned, if you will. There was like something in my bloodstream, but in my legs moving down towards my feet. And I thought, that's probably not a good indicator of what is about to follow. Now, I was approximately three blocks from my house. And that three blocks, might as well have been from base camp to the summit of Everest. It was uphill, and its lagoon is steep. But I burst out into sweat that was basically emitting from all surfaces of my body. And now I knew that I was on deck for what my wife had been through. And by the time I got to my house, I literally was seeing things. I was hallucinating The poison had moved, somehow it started in my quads and had moved up now to my brain. I was literally in the front yard of our apartment hallucinating. I was seeing other people and other things, and all I could think about was making it back to the house, which I did, and then I became Mount Pinatubo, and I was um, 20,000 feet of ash clouds blooming in all directions, and my wife is like, I am never going anywhere with you again, loser. And so <clears throat> I continued the project. I did not eat in that particular establishment again. I don't think I ate for about six days. I think I was basically water uh, for the first three or four days, and then swearing off all caloric consumption for the rest of my life, which didn't last, but it felt like it would. And that's my puke story for today. Uh, the, the other one I was going to tell you, uh, is really good, but I don't want to embarrass anyone. And it's, um, it was completely disgusting. But it speaks about a time in life that I think for all of us is pretty interesting, because I think as we get older, we we put up all these fences and we put up all these things in our lives where the ingredients around us have to be a certain way, and that's learned behavior. It's BS. It doesn't have to be that way but we tell ourselves it does and our worlds get smaller and that's not a good thing. So the, the original puke story I was going to tell you was about something that happened in college and the, something that happened after that sort of, I look at it now and it's repulsive and makes me wonder how I could have ever done something like that. But then at the same time, it makes me reassess how I'm living now and saying, don't be such a candy ass, right? I mean, like you, th- this is ridiculous. You're, you're, you're making more of this than it is. And so maybe I'll share it next time. It does involve, involve a friend. Uh, I was not the one projectiling. He was. And um, very entertaining at the time for me because I was not the one projectiling. He was. And so I'll explain in further at a later date. Until then, thanks for listening.